This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Even though the U.S. economy is rebounding from the recession, there are still struggles going on financially for many Americans. Wages have stagnated in many jobs, and companies don't seem to be phased by the fact that there are more jobs open right now than people to fill them. We also have had the disconnect of skills necessary for many of those open jobs. And all the while, costs keep rising for most of the things we use every day. Alyssa Court is author of the new book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, which looks at a variety of these problems, and she joins us right now. Alyssa, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. There's a there's a great statistic at the at the outset that you have in, in the book. Middle class life is thirty percent more expensive than it was twenty years ago. I, I don't think there are many people out there that unfortunately would disagree with you on that. No, I, I, and I'm hearing from a lot of them since my book came out. Well, what is it that seemingly is the greatest concern that a lot of people have right now because of this problem of affordability here in America? Well, the main problem is the cost of housing. At least that's what I found from my research and from my interviews, especially in uh, places like uh, San Francisco, L.A., New York City, et cetera. Second problem was the cost of daycare. Um, and, that, you know, a lot of it had to do with, as you were saying in the lead-up, with wages, that the wages were just not keeping up with other kinds of expenses, with, with universities, their own student debt, and then the cost of their children's educations. Why so much uh, has housing, in your mind, become just the, this, this uh, albatross around the neck of a lot of people? I just think in some of these desirable places, real estate is no longer... A place to live, but it's a it's an investment vehicle, right? And so what it it's done is it's driven up the cost of housing for ordinary people or the middle precariat, the precarious middle class, as as I call them, and it makes a lot of places, you know, that are desirable cities practically unlivable. Yeah. What What about the 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 link between the the rise in the cost of housing in in a place like San Francisco, using that as an example, yet in, in that part of the country, uh, you have kind of a a, a very well to do sector of business that is there, obviously Silicon Valley, that that is able to seemingly pay the wages in some cases that a lot of people need to have to be able to live there. In other places, they're not willing to. Yeah, so I mean, I think what you need is you need affordable housing if you're going to be uh, asking people, requiring people to live in these cities that are gone nuts because of Google or uh, other kinds of companies moving, also moving into the cities themselves. So it's not just uh, their presence outside. They're, they often have headquarters in the cities. So I, what I advocate in my book is for affordable housing for people like municipal workers and firefighters and teachers. I interviewed teachers who drive Uber on the weekends and yeah. evenings uh, because they can't, they can't afford to get by on a union teacher salary uh, in the areas around San Francisco and Los Angeles. How much do you think we've lost the middle class and... Do you think it is something that's going to be an incredible challenge to try and get back to what we remember? And I'm 51. What I remember, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it is a challenge. It's it's starting to I think part of the what I'm hoping my book will do is that people will open their eyes 
even to the ways that they are themselves at risk and precarious. And instead of feeling bad about it and turning it on themselves, they'll start to vote differently. Uh, they'll start to feel aligned with working class people who are have long been precarious, right? The working poor, rather than identifying with the top 1% or the top 5%, like, why can't I be them? They'll, they'd start to say, how do we organize and vote differently and ask for reforms that, and, you know, things like universal pre-K that will help all of us who are vaguely precarious. You mentioned uh, the word shame, and it's it's an important word where this book is concerned because there are many people that feel ashamed right now of the situation they may be in economically, whether it be you know, having two kids and, and struggling to pay the mortgage or, you know, or a variety of different factors right now. Yeah, so I use the word shame because I'm very interested in the emotional and existential elements of financial struggle and also financial victory. Like, I, I just, that's who I am. I'm, I'm interested in what's going on inside people. And that was a word that came up or blaming themselves, people saying, you know, what did I do wrong? I did everything right. I got these degrees. I, I worked hard. Why is this not coming together? And I guess I wanted to shine a light through this book and be like, you know, this is a stigma that you're bearing. You know, also there's a stigma, you're not poor, right? You're middle class. So you're like, why, how, how can I complain? So there's an added shame with that too. So I think that's the, that's the, that's the thing that we need to open our eyes to and say, okay, I'm, I'm not ashamed. This is a system failure. I need to, maybe I do need to live my life a little differently if I'm doing, doing what I love and it's not paying off, but also I need to start thinking about other kinds of solutions to, you know, as a class, as a middle class, like what can we do differently? Well, and, and part of that you mentioned in, in with some of the examples are things as simple as, you know, a woman getting pregnant and feeling shame that the, that, either their work is putting more pressure on them or they feel like it is it is not necessarily the best thing to bring a child into the world right now. Well, yeah, and so, I mean, you're probably familiar, there's this new uh, data that was suggesting women were having fewer children than at any point since 1978. Uh, that's 1.76 children down from 2.1 in 2007, and the number the re number one reason they were saying was was income. Um, and, you know, the, you know, they were angry about it. They, they, you know, many of these women would have wanted to have more than 1.76 children. I'm not sure what that looks like, but, um, but the reason for 78 is important because, you know, it, the middle class started to decline in the early eighties. So there's a reason why we have, uh, a, a bunch of pregnant, uh, or a bunch of women who are of fertile age who are afraid to have kids because of the cost. So because we're, we're, we're casting this blame then, I, I mean, with, with all of these issues, and, and obviously there we haven't really even gotten into the, the concern uh, of the top 10% or even the top 1% and, and the financial uh, benefits that they are seeing, w with all of these issues going on right now, I is there an area where you cast blame the most? Uh, like who is drawing a lot of this uh, or should be drawing a lot of this attention for you know, for, for problems that are being caused and, and people not being able to feel confident in having a decent wage and having a small house and being able to have one and a half kids or two and a half kids, whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah, I mean, I think if we're looking lately at the at wealth, we're, there was an article recently about how wages aren't keeping up and 
prices are soaring and who's pro- who's been profiting from this recent um, sunshine moment in our economy. It's all co- corporate wealth. So obviously we need to be thinking differently about our so-called tax reform and, you know, trying to get some share of this wealth for workers. And that's that's something that is going to have to start with us. I mean, I'll just be frank, voting differently. Yeah. Um, but some but some of it's local. I mean, some of it's activity we can we can do on a local level. We can vote differently on a local level. In New York City, people just voted in a Queens Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, uh, who had a very uh, uh, open perspective about this precarious class. And then there's 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 elections around the country on local levels. And um, I mean, I also feel like people should start mobilizing for these so-called pie-in-the-sky things, like better maternity leave, yeah. or um, or just you know, pregnancy discrimination. There's laws against it; they're just not enforced. You know, uh, this is something that people can do in the corporate sector. You know, your listeners can do. They can start saying, "We better make sure these norms are enforced; that people are not being discriminated against on the job." Well, and that's an important point to it: is that some of these issues can be changed with changes in policy there's there's no question about that it's it's again having the people in congress or at the state level whatever it might be to to want to change and and not being influenced by lobbies and and it's it's an important area that that's still i mean it's been talked about for decades but it's still basically the same as as when i was a young boy yeah i know so so what do we do (laughs) where do we go well, that that's the great question, and how much do we? How much can people expect to have this change done if seemingly we've gone thirty or forty years without enough change? It's almost like people feel like they're they're hitting their wall, uh, hitting their head against a wall. In many cases. Well, one of the things I keep thinking, um, and I, I kind of want to write about this, is that everyone says, "Oh, this is so pie in the sky," you know, like universal basic income. That's now, you know, Chris Hughes is rabbiting on about it, right? A lot of people are, great people. Um, and that's providing income guarantee for people, uh, especially people who are lower income, but p- potentially larger swathes of the population. Or, as I was saying, you know, uh, maternity leave for more than the current uh, 14% of the, you know, population of workers, which is really very small. But, but the question is, why are these things so out there? I mean, look at Me Too. Norms around harassment have seemingly changed in the course of a year. Um, gay marriage passed. You know, I mean, these things were seen as out. I mean, Trump's election. <laughs> these are very, uh, these might have seemed strange outliers, yeah. you know, five years ago. Like, so my question is why these meat and potato things like, like, pregnancy, uh, anti-discrimination, or maternity leave, or daycare, because this affects so many people. Why are we not, you know, just seeing these as, as things that could happen? And it, if you look at New York City, universal pre-K, in the course of two years, uh, we now have pre-K for all. So this is kind of a, you know, it was done in a huge city. Right. And and that builds on the education piece, which is seemingly a big problem in this country right now. Uh, the fact that, that trying to get a college education uh, is harder and harder because of the costs associated with it. And not only just the cost at the time of going to school, but the the significant problem of having to deal with college, uh, paying off college loans 20 and 30 years after you get done. It's true. And that's I write about that, too. And also, one thing that um, was, seen, was new to me, and I call it the second act industry, were people who, whose debt wasn't from when they were 
in college. It was from when they were in their 40s and 50s because they went back to school and they got certificates and they got a second degree because they felt like, I need to be retrained. They kept being told they need to be retrained, and then they wound up quite in debt. And so we need to be careful of that, too, where, I mean, this is a fix. Offer free or cheap cheap retraining programs, right? Yeah. People talk about apprenticeship programs, but have them more available to adults, you know, and and not and don't you know encourage people uh, or not oversee when people are being uh, snookered. I talked to a guy who sixty thousand dollars in debt for getting retrained in uh, degree in IT uh, from a, one of those for-profit colleges. Yeah. I think it's since been shut down. <laughs> it was like so corrupt, but he yeah. didn't know. And that he had four kids, and now he's he's not making any more money. So these things just need to be have more oversight. Um, and I'm hoping that like if we keep talking about this second act industry, people will like think twice before they enroll in some of these colleges. Well, there there's also the the mindset and the conversation that uh, a lot of times kids have with their parents when they're getting ready to go to college uh, of the do what you love philosophy. And while in some cases that may end up being very beneficial where you can have a, a good life and a good career, uh, in, in many cases it's not. And it's, it's even those conversations between parent and child that may need to change as well. Yeah, it, I mean, that's, that's, that was one of the things that really affected me and has actually affected my parenting. I have a seven-year-old, right. and she said, I want to be an artist, you know. Um, <laughs> I don't know, do you, do you have kids? I do. Three kids, 12 and nine-year-old twins. And what do you do when they say these wonderful creative things they want to be? Well, you know what? Luckily, I haven't gotten to that that conversation just yet. Uh, but even when they were... Do you have boys? One boy, <laughs> one boy two girls. Okay. And, and so, you, you know, I, I am... And doing this show on a daily basis, I'm very well aware of, of all of these issues. And when we get to the point where they're starting to think about what they want to follow uh, as a as a career path, I'm, I'm going to have some hard conversations with them because I, I see this in talking with people like you and talking with people here at the University of Pennsylvania on a daily basis right now. You can't always just do what you love. Right. I mean, one of the advice I, get, I used to teach at uh, Columbia J School, journalism school, and other colleges, and I would just try to get the students to say, get a job in, in a non nonprofit or an NGO, non governmental yeah. organization, and then write on the side. Because I, I, I now run an organization called Economic Hardship Reporting Project, yeah. and we give grants to, to journalists that are struggling, and something like 50% of journalism jobs have shrunk since 2000. <laughs> newspaper jobs oh yeah so it's hard to be like yeah go ahead do that but they're in a way if you go in being like okay i'm gonna work in the diplomatic corps i'm gonna you know i don't know uh you know work at teach for america but i'm gonna write my memoir in a way that might be a better fix for someone who's 24 than to tell them to go to start being a reporter in the midwest how much how much do you think that that what you're seeing economically in this in this country right now has been a direct influence on some of the decisions that especially the millennial generation are making right now and maybe even the next two or three generations may have to make because of seemingly this path we are we are headed down economically right now yeah they're not they're not as we just discussed they're not having kids at the same rate they're not owning homes either 
And that is going to really, I mean, maybe that's going to shift the real estate market ultimately. You know, they can't afford to own homes. Um, I talk to people who are younger than me, uh, millennials, and they'll say, you know, yeah, they'll say, I can't, I don't have a home, I don't have kids. Um, You know, they have a partner maybe, they have ambitions. And they often have these degrees that are incredibly expensive. um, And they don't don't know how they're going to pay them back. So I, I do think it's going to change things. I mean, one thing we should start talking about is debt forgiveness or yeah. cheaper universities and colleges, maybe attending cheaper universities and colleges, but, um, but also just like keeping some of those costs of colleges in check because, I mean, it's ridiculous if it starts to stymie, you know, our population and our productivity, that, that doesn't seem like a very good uh, education at all, does it? So then how much do you think that, that all of these issues, and, and specifically around the middle class, how much do you think they, they have potentially affected growth of the U.S. economy in the, in the last few years? In what, what, in what sense? Just in general, because if we're talking about a, a, a large class of people in this country who have to be more worried about uh, paying their car and paying their uh, mortgage or their rental, and obviously rentals have gone up, then they don't have as much money to spend on taking a trip to Disneyland with their kids or mm-hmm. spending on, uh, on the clothing that they would like to do or spending on you know so many different things. I think there's a, there's a, a significant issue of where our, our economic growth could be if we we're able to focus more on those things than having to worry about paying off all the debt that seemingly we're having to collect. Yeah, and in general, just having a more productive and imaginative population that's, I mean, if we're worried about global competition, if we have uh, so many academics worrying about, you know, getting a job rather than, you know, create, patenting something, I don't know. I mean, you know, I just think it sort of stymies, uh, like, uh, people on a, gra- on a grand scale also, doesn't it, you know? Yeah. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in. We're talking with Alyssa Court, who is the author of the book Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So I mentioned earlier, and I wanted to touch on this, obviously we're talking about a time right now where the middle class is feeling like it's harder and harder these days. Let's not even, you know, I mean, we could even get into how the lower financial uh, sectors are being burdened by this. But this this division between the top income earners and the middle class and how it has grown and how that division is impacting so many decisions in this country right now. Um, you're asking me? Yes, Alyssa. you're asking our, our potential uh, callers? Yes, Alyssa. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um... Yeah, I, I mean, I think under thrumming under all of these questions is this huge division and this enormous inequality. America, you know, has the greatest inequality. If they did a study of hundreds of nations, income inequality and very and a lot less mobility than it used to have. Too. Yeah. So that I think is is something. It's almost like the mobility piece is connected to the inequality piece, and uh, you know that's where you start to get people feeling like they can't live the lives that their parents lived. Um, and it's, it's, it has a chilling effect, you know. Um, you're like, because, you know, who are we as, a, as, a, as Americans? We're supposed to be aspiring and, and uh, progre- progressing, right? This is the American dream. Yeah. But if, when you know you can't, what does that do to you as a citizen? 
Well, there's another part, which, and you mentioned it earlier, about uh, people having to pick up extra work in the gig economy right now. Uh, there was a report a couple of weeks ago about the fact that seemingly there are less jobs in the gig economy now than there were a year ago, two years ago. And that has to be a concern when you're talking about some of the dynamics you bring up in this book, that if people need these jobs as secondary income coming uh, coming uh, forward, and some of these jobs are drying up, then there's an even greater economic problem maybe down the road five years or ten years in our path. Yeah. and I mean, this is uh, when you start to think we need better unions. Um, I mean, if we're talking about inequality, part of what the thing that's heightened it is that, uh, you know, corporate wealth and uh, taxation that's not um, – that it's very unfair to uh, people who are self-employed and who are poor, poor on the poor side. But then there's also, you know, the, the whole question of whether, um, you know, we should start to, to wonder why there's people who are that wealthy. wealthy. Should there be people who are that wealthy? What does this do to people in general who are forced to do these sideline jobs, like these gig jobs? Should they have some ownership also of their own gig job, let's say? And then if you think about unions, you know, 30% of workers in the 60s were in unions, and now it's something like 10% or even less, 7% in, I think, private sector. So, um, you know, that, that just heightens it. They can't fight for their own rights. They don't own their, their part of the gig economy, and they don't um, – they don't have any solidarity in the workplace. Yeah, about a minute left. Uh, you have a, a chapter in the book that that talks about the rise of of one percent television. Take us into uh, really the backstory <laughs> on that. Yeah. So, well, part of this is again with my point, like we should be identifying with people who are more vulnerable or as vulnerable as we are, and not the very rich. But so many shows, like, and I love them. I watch them. Billions, um, uh, Downton Abbey, The Crown, Ozark. They're all about the very wealthy, and we're supposed to be identifying with these often morally compromised people. And I, I found it fascinating. Many of the middle, uh, precarious middle-class people in my book were also watching these shows, and they were also using them as an escape. Right. And, uh, yeah, it was fascinating. Great having you on the show, Alyssa. Thank you very much for your time today. Oh. Thanks a lot. Thank you. The book is Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. Alyssa Court is the author of the book. Great having her on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.